The scripture lesson for today is Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, and the title of the sermon today is Question But, Question But. You know, I never met her, but I'll never forget her. Her name was Sabrina. She was 21 years old, a beautiful young woman, had just graduated from dental hygiene school, and life was good. But then, life was gone. You see, on June the 7th, 1998, Sabrina was killed by a drunk driver. The funeral home called a young pastor in town to ask if he would officiate this young woman's funeral. It was me. I didn't know the woman or her family, and the woman and her family didn't know me. They wanted a pastor, and I wanted to be the light of Christ during what was certainly a dark and difficult season in their life. I can still remember going over to the family's house to talk with them for the first time about what Sabrina's funeral might look like. And while I can't remember the specific decisions that we made regarding Sabrina's funeral that day, I can still remember the questions. The questions that this family had of God. Why? Would you allow something like this to happen? Those are the questions that are so difficult, if not impossible, to answer on this side of eternity. And yet they are questions that plague many of us. In fact, I wish that you all were here in this sanctuary today so that I could just see a show of hands so that I could know that I'm not the only one who finds himself over and over again as life throws so many curveballs at us questioning God. I suspect that if you were here and I ask you to show your hands, that many if not all of you would raise your hands and say, yes, I've had moments where I questioned God. Why do people drive drunk? Or why are innocent people killed? Or why are there earthquakes and tornadoes? Why do people walk into schools and shoot children and teachers and staff? Why is there a virus that is wreaking havoc over the entire world, not only taking the lives of those that we know and those that we love, but also claiming jobs and financial security. Why, God? Why is this happening? Help us to make sense of it. We begin a new sermon series today on this book of Job. And what I find interesting is that Job's name itself gives us a clue as to what we're going to find in this book that we'll study for the next five weeks. For the word that is translated Job actually means, where is the divine Father? Where are you? 
You can also translate the, the word that is translated for us, Job, as persecuted one. Whichever way you decide to interpret Job's name today, where are you, God, or being persecuted, it seems apropos in the middle of this pandemic when so many of these types of questions are coming to the surface. Last week, my clergy colleague, Jim Clardy, preached, and he preached out of the Gospel of Mark. And he told the story about how Jesus was in the boat with his disciples, and Jesus was sleepy because he'd been teaching and preaching, and the crowds had been pressing in on him. And so we were told that Jesus goes to the stern of the boat, and he takes a nap. And wouldn't you know it, while Jesus is napping in the stern of the boat, this great and fierce storm begins to take place on the sea, and it scares the disciples to death. And so they go back to Jesus at the stern of the boat, and they wake him up, and they wake him up with a question, do you not care that we are perishing? I've always found comfort in that question. If the people who were closest to Jesus, if the people who had walked with Jesus, if the people that knew Jesus the best had a question about Jesus or for Jesus, then I reason it's okay for me to have questions. And if the people who knew Jesus the best and, and were with Him the most and followed Him most closely felt like they could go to Jesus with their question, then I reason that I can go to God with my questions. You know, many of us were raised in traditions where we were told that you cannot question God and yet, as I hear that story that Jim preached on last week, and as I read through the book of Job, and in fact, as I read through much of Scripture, it seems to me that questions are not only allowed, but in some ways, they're actually encouraged. You see, if we're going to question God, the very fact that we would go to God with a question suggests on some level that we have faith in a God. That we have faith that this God could actually answer the questions that we might have of God. And so I want to invite you to join with me over the next five weeks. And coming to grips with some of the questions that we might have of God. And see what this story of Job might have to say to us. The story begins by saying there once was a man named Job. Many scholars suggest that when you hear that phrase, there once was a man, that actually we should hear it in much the same way that we would hear once upon a time or long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. You see, scholars, many of them suggest that this is wisdom literature, not a historical narrative. That the book of Job is to be meant to read more like a fable where there is some sort of truth or moral that might be there for us to grasp instead of something that literally, actually happened. 
And the reason why so many scholars believe this is because the book of Job, the way it's put together, is just a series of really long, elaborate speeches by different people. And it would have been impossible for someone to be there or to transcribe or to chronicle all of those speeches word for word to pass down. And it's not just the words, but it's the way the words are, are, are worded. It's, it's, it's more like poetry or prose. It's, it's not really like people that are really grappling and sitting down with some of life's difficult questions and circumstances. And so many believe that this story is actually meant to be more like wisdom literature. What we might get from it and not just knowing or learning about something that actually happened. We're told early in the story that Job was both blameless and upright. And what those words in the Hebrew mean is that, that, that this was a guy that really did seek to live and behave according to God's expectations. This was a guy that was really trying to do what God wanted him to do. As opposed to so many other people we read about in Scripture and we're told that they did what was good and right in their own eyes. No, Job really did want to do what was right in God's eyes. When we read that he was blameless, when we read that he was upright, we're not supposed to hear that he was sinless or, or that he was perfect. In fact, Job in chapters 13 and 14 acknowledges his sinfulness. He's not trying to suggest that he's sinless or that he's without error. He is just really trying to seek to do the ways of God, the will of God. He is taking God seriously. And life's not bad for Job. I mean, Job's got 10 wonderful, amazing kids. I mean, if Job had Instagram back then, you could guarantee that multiple times a day he'd be posting pictures of his seven sons and his three daughters and, and their families. He loves his children. And, and we're told that he's got uh, 7,000 um, sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 ox and 500 donkeys and he's got a lot of servants in his home. We're told even in Job chapter 1 that Job is the greatest man in all the east. And there seems to be an implication in the text that the reason why Job is so healthy and so wealthy and has such great kids is because of this blameless and upright nature in which he lives. And yet we know, you and I know, that good behavior isn't always rewarded, is it? I mean, look no further than this pandemic and there are people in our church and there are people in our community and there are people in our world that are doing the right things that are good and godly people and yet they are still suffering tremendously in the midst of this pandemic. We know that good behavior isn't always rewarded. And we also know that bad behavior isn't always punished, don't we? 
I mean, do you know anybody that has ever messed up and moved up? If so, can I get an amen from your lazy boy? Yes, we all know people who have done bad and horrible things and yet nothing ever seems to come of it. It seems like everything seems to go their way. Well, the implication is that Job is being blessed because he is blameless and he is upright. But that doesn't always mean that it will be true for us. What we do know in this story is that at the beginning of Job, there is no pandemic happening in the world. And that's because Job and his family enjoy spending lots of quality time with each other. Uh, we're told that they spend days and days and days together, that they look for opportunities to get together and spend lots of time together. So I'm not going to ask for an amen from your lazy boy if you've enjoyed spending lots of quality time with your family for the past month during this pandemic. But Job's children, they get together for all of these feasts and they spend days together and they feast and they celebrate. And yet, after these feasts have concluded, Job does something that I find really interesting. Uh, Job seeks to purify or to sanctify his children and their families to make sure that they are holy. We're told in the text that Job is afraid that during these parties that maybe his children and their families might say or do something or even think something in their hearts that might be interpreted by God as them cursing God or sinning against God. And so Job offers this purification or this sanctification process. He makes a burnt offering on their behalf just in case they have cursed God in their hearts. Now I'm not so sure what this means. Uh, does this say something about what Job thinks about his kids? That, that maybe if, if they get together for a party that they might have too much to drink and that they might say something or do something or think something that would be considered sinful or a curse against God? Or does it say more about what Job thinks of God? You know, in this day there were many people who claim to be uh, servants of many gods. And, and all of these gods in the ancient Near East, uh, it was all about what they wanted and satisfying themselves and pleasuring themselves. They weren't out to seek to be just. They weren't out to seek to be fair. They were just out to get what they wanted to make themselves feel better and so the people that follow these other ancient gods would oftentimes just continue to give gift after gift and sacrifice after sacrifice to these gods in the hopes that it would just keep them happy. Could it be that the reason why Job offers these sacrifices, the reason why he seeks to have this purification or sanctification ceremony is not because of what he thinks about his kids, but what he's worried about with his God. And he just wants to keep his God happy and pleased 
with him and his family. If that's the motivation for why Job does what he does, then it does somewhat explain the question that the Satan presents to God a little later in our story. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. I want to help you understand this, this character, the Satan, but I need to move on with the text. Uh, we're told that... Um, there's something going on that makes me hope and believe that this really is uh, a wisdom literature and not an actual account of something happening. Because if this is an account of something that really happened, then what it means is that there are committee meetings in heaven. God forbid there be committee meetings in heaven. I mean, I'm a United Methodist pastor. I feel like I go to meetings all the time. I do not even want to begin to think that once I leave this earth and draw my last breath and enter into the glory of heaven, that there will be more committee meetings to attend. The only thing that sounds worse to me than more committee meetings to attend would be to find out that once you get to heaven, that Rocky Top is on a loop and it plays over and over and over again. But there is this committee meeting, according to Job, that's taking place in heaven. We don't know everybody that's at this meeting. Uh, we're told some translations call them a group of angels. I don't particularly like that translation because angels to me, as I understand them throughout the Bible and throughout the history of our faith, are typically messengers. They come with a word from the Lord to give to other people. And there's nothing in this text that suggests that these people that gathered together with God were messengers. It seems as if they've just gathered together with God to perform uh, administrative functions. Uh, so other translations would translate this text as heavenly beings or literally the sons of God. I prefer those translations to angels. The two people that we do know are present at this meeting, however, are God and the Satan. Yes, I said the Satan. Because in the book of Job, there is actually an article before the name Satan every single time. Um, it's, it's meant to show us that this Satan is not to be an actual person. The Satan is more of a person's function than it is an actual person. Lots of people have, have been taught and, who, and believe that this same Satan that is in Job is the same Satan that we find in the New Testament. I don't believe that there's enough evidence to link those two together. This word Satan here, always preceded with an article, the Satan, is more about describing a function of a person than it is a literal person's name. 
We're supposed to see and read and understand the Satan as the role that this person plays in the story. It might be translated the accuser or the challenger or the prosecuting attorney. The role of this person is to wander the earth and to look for evidence that some of God's people are being dis loyal to God and that's what we find here in this story the accuser the challenger the Satan shows up it's as if he was supposed to be there there's no evidence to suggest that God was surprised by his arrival and in fact God asks him what he's been up to and he says that he's been walking to and fro all over the earth doing his job and it appears as if at this moment that God actually wants to brag on his boy Job he knows that the Satan has been out looking for evidence of disloyalty and God is confident that there is one person in whom this accuser or challenger or Satan will never find disloyalty and that's in the person of Job. You won't find any disloyalty there. And then that's why the Satan, the challenger, the accuser responds to God with the question, do you really think that this Job fears you for nothing? That he worships you for nothing? That he serves you for nothing? If so, God, you're mistaken. I believe that if you took away the blessings that you have given to Job, that he would curse you to your face. The challenger thinks that the only reason that Job worships and fears and serves and loves the Lord is because of what the Lord is doing for Job. Well, God is so confident that Job will not be disloyal that he allows Job to begin testing, uh, Satan to begin testing Job for his disloyalty. And what happens? Job loses everything. We're told that there was a party going on and that they got word that uh, someone had stolen all of the donkeys and all of the oxen uh, and all of the uh, donkeys. And we're also told that the sheep were struck, all of them killed. We're also told that a tornado came and killed every single person in his family. And we're told that Job grieves. No doubt the tears falling from his eyes. We're told that Job tears his clothing and that he shaves his head, which was um, what they typically did in moments of grief back during Joseph's day. But guess what? The Satan was wrong. When all of those things were took away from Job, Job still 
did not curse God. Do you know what Job did instead? He fell to his knees and he worshipped God. It's apparently what God said was true that Job does worship God for no apparent reason. He loves God just as much when he has nothing as he did when he had everything. He is just as faithful to fall to his knees and worship God after everything that he cared about and everything that he loved had been taken away from him as he was when he had everything that he loved and he cared about. In fact, Job says later on in the book that though God would slay me, still I would worship God. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't give up on God. He doesn't denounce His faith. He loves God as much with nothing as He loved God with everything. Yes, we'll learn later, He does question God. Oh, He has lots of questions for God. And yet, ultimately, He trusts God. You know, I moved away and I lost contact with Sabrina's family after I officiated that funeral. But as God would have it, years and years and years later, I ended up being reunited with Sabrina's family had an opportunity to visit with them again. And what I would want you to know about that reunion was that even though they still had questions, they still trusted. They still worshipped. They still served the Lord. May it be said to be true of us as well. Amen.